Neighborhoods are nothing if not a host for our routines. A man down the street takes his dog for a walk at the same time every day. The milk gets dropped off on Tuesdays. You wave to your neighbor, maybe stopping by for a brief chat on the stoop. But what happens when that routine is shattered and that neighbor, who was a front porch fixture, is simply gone forever? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's early afternoon on April 30, 1958. 20-year-old Charles Carmen is at his Hartford, Connecticut home, jamming out to what he called his favorite rock and roll television show. And I looked all over for what that was, but I could not find it. So let's speculate. Maybe American Bandstand? I would say so. And that is Catherine, my producer. Hi. Whom a lot of you know but some of you don't, and she pops in from time to time. Charles and his wife, Lucy, have an 18-month-old daughter. That night, Charles is in the living room doing what young dads do, maybe playing air guitar or headbanging to that television show. Anyway, at some point, Charles hears his daughter start crying. At first, he ignores it. But when he can no longer hear his television show, he walks into the kitchen and, without warning, strikes his daughter several times. She cries even harder and louder. Frustrated he can no longer enjoy his show, Charles carries the infant into the bedroom and, before placing her into the crib, he hits the baby again, this time with his fist. Now that she has been beaten unconscious, Charles heads into the kitchen and makes himself a sandwich. I mean, I hate this guy already, but where is the wife? Is she home? Is she at work? From what I could decipher, she is at work and he is at home and he is not working, of course, Mm -hmm. and he is taking care of the child. And I agree with you. Charles is not a nice human being. He is, let's just say, uh, a superior shitbag, let's Mm -hmm. call him. Mm -hmm. His wife, Lucy Carmen, walks into the house near 6 p.m., heads straight in to fetch her daughter, and discovers the child is listless, as Lucy would later describe. Lucy brings the child into the living room and asks Charles what in the hell happened. Charles grabs some antiseptic ointment and rubs the ointment on what are now bruises all over the baby's body, as if the ointment is going to somehow bring her back into consciousness. By 9 p.m., the baby is even more listless and lethargic, and, well, she's dying. Charles calls the police and tells them to send someone. But Lucy knows they cannot wait, so she begs Charles to flag down a motorist driving by the house who stops and then rushes them all to the hospital. And they do this because they don't have a vehicle. In Hartford, at that time, everyone took the bus, basically. It was rare that somebody had a car. Hmm. On the way to the hospital, Lucy gets a sense her child is likely dead. Quote, 
Her eyes were wide open and she would not respond to her name, end quote. I would say there's problems there. Sure enough, the baby, Donna Lucia Carmen, is pronounced dead of cerebral hemorrhage upon their arrival at the hospital. Okay, so Charles has murdered the baby. On May 2nd, 1958, Charles is charged with murder and breach of peace. Police describe Donna's death as the result of a, quote, vicious beating, end quote. But as it turns out, this is not Charles's first go around with the law. His first arrest was in 1954 when he and a group of neighborhood Hartford boys tried to force a 16-year-old girl into a car. Charles himself, 16 at the time. Wow. I mean, I'm sure their intentions were totally pure uh, with that poor girl. But so, I mean, one would imagine we have more to talk about, but that honestly should be the end of the story, right? He goes immediately to jail and serves time for murdering his infant daughter, right? Right. So it's it's kind of a bizarre story in a way for us to tell because we start out in the first couple minutes giving you an entire murder mm-hmm. and then the end of it. Yep. But that kind of sets the stage for a more contemporary story that's going to begin right now. So one month after Donna Lucia is pronounced dead, those initial charges Charles is facing are, well, dropped. After it was learned that Charles had a history of mental illness and had spent some time at a Middletown, Connecticut mental facility, the charges were downgraded to manslaughter. A grand jury took an alleged baby slayer, said one newspaper account of the incident, out of the shadow of the electric chair by failing to indict Charles Carmen in the murder of his baby girl. And if I can just say here, as a kid growing up in East Hartford, Connecticut, That facility had a reputation. Let me tell you that. Everybody knew it. Everybody talked about it. And everybody feared this place. This was a mental hospital institution that had that kind of stigma attached to it. Yeah, like really rough, people being not treated, padded cell type of place. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Charles pleads guilty to manslaughter. Within that proceeding, Charles admits having beaten the child on a fairly regular basis because he felt the child had rejected him. That is insane. How does a child who can't even speak yet reject you? Uh, Right. Well, he is ultimately sentenced to five to 12 years in the state's prison, which was in Wethersfield, Connecticut at the time. And I should say, now is the Department of Motor Vehicles. How... Apropos. A place of torture still. (laughs) (laughs) I got you with that one. (laughs) Oh, that's fucking funny. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's funny. (sighs) I've been tortured at that motor vehicle department. Trust me. (laughs) I believe it. When Charles's release from prison after about seven years. He and Lucy reconnect, of course. Why not? Why not reconnect with the guy who killed your child? Right. And begin a life together once again. Yes. (laughs) It gets worse. In 1965, they have a second child together, Lucy Carmen. Yeah, Lucy. Okay. Lucy is born with a congenital heart disease. Her first operation is at just seven days old. Wow. So Lucy is named after her mom. 
Yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I was thinking about this when I was looking at this case and I was thinking, well, I named my son after me, my first Right. She's a junior, really. So why can't, why can't a mother do that? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it seems weird, but it's not. Why not? Why not? Little Lucy had it rough from the moment she was born. There was a scare in 1966 when Lucy was seven months old. She was rushed to the hospital after turning blue one day. Her condition was diagnosed as pulmonary artery stenosis, which causes a deficiency of oxygen in the circulatory system. A month after that ordeal, little Lucy was back in the hospital undergoing yet another heart surgery. A family friend this time had saved Lucy's life by giving her mouth-to-mouth, allowing for enough time to get her to the hospital. By this time, they've migrated just over the bridge, not even a mile, from Hartford to East Hartford, along with two younger siblings, one of whom was adopted. Oh, perfect. So they brought more children into their loving home. And, you know, as a competent uh, state agency of adoptions, why wouldn't you give a child to someone who's murdered a child already? Right, who served time for that, in fact. why not? I mean, you know. So now what we have here is all of them living under the wrath and iron fist of Charles. In 1970, Charles was arrested for maiming with intent to disfigure, breach of peace, and assaulting a police officer. He had also slapped and choked little Lucy that same night. Charles gets away again with a mere slap on the wrist. Years go by. And a series of beatings under the fearful rule of an abuser follow. The family stays together despite all the horrors going on inside the home. In 1984, Charles is arrested yet again, this time for beating his 13-year-old son with a belt and a wooden bat. Okay, But the guy seems to escape justice every single time. I mean, this is the thing. There's a paper trail. Like, this isn't just, okay, they contain the torture and the beatings at home. Like, there is a paper trail in government buildings about this guy. So, I mean, they're just like letting them adopt kids, letting him go on with his life, whatever. He keeps getting sent back into the household. Doesn't make sense. When he's not beating them, Charles doesn't allow his kids to do much of anything. They are sheltered and, for the most part, stay at home. And I know this sounds like it's heading toward what is a presumed second murder by Charles. But look, stay with me on this one. There's a big twist coming. Let's take a break here, and when I come back, you'll hear from Lucy's neighbor. Welcome back, murder people. Friends and neighbors recall always seeing little Lucy sitting on the front steps of the Carmen home on Church Street in East Hartford, Connecticut. I grew up in the same town until the age of 12. Church Street was on the other side of town, about four miles away from our house. Back then, that short distance was two different worlds, yet I was very familiar with that side of town. It was considered more middle class than where we lived, which was more like the working poor. By 1987, little Lucy Carmen is 21 years old. She's considered, quote, weird, end quote, a quiet neighborhood fixture 
who exhibits strange behaviors, but is also well-liked by several of the neighborhood kids near her home. Other kids, however, pick on Lucy and make fun of her eccentricities. One might reckon Lucy's medical battles with heart problems all her life contributed to her maybe seeming different, which is a problem in the world we all live in. Too often, it's human nature to judge somebody as an oddball or different when we have no idea what they are going through or the road they've traveled. Ain't that the truth. And that's sad. A former neighbor of Lucy's who's asked to be called Heather connected with me as I researched this case. I spoke to her recently about Lucy's father and Lucy's life growing up in such an abusive situation. He was really strict with her. She really wasn't allowed, you know, to interact with people. When I was in her house, I walked her home because some girls were picking on her in front of Sam's Pizza. And I was like, no, this isn't happening. So I walked her home. And her, it was really, really kind of an old house. I mean, there was a lot of dark. It was really dark in there. Dark paneling and stuff like that on the walls but i mean again like i said i don't know that she had any solid tangible friends i don't think that her father would allow it um i know that he you know got upset because i was in the house he didn't want anybody in the house i don't know that he was mean per se because i only met him then i mean i wasn't thinking too highly of him at that moment I'm like, wow, you know, I just watched your daughter home because she was going to get her ass kicked in front of Sam's pizza and you're treating me, you know. Lucy was often bullied by certain people around the neighborhood. Heather always stuck up for her whenever she saw it. The second time I had watched her home, they were picking on her as she was walking home. And I was like, yeah, no. Yeah, all neighborhood kids. Making fun of her, they push her around, they, you know, make her cry, and it was just ridiculous. Lucy had a way about her that was hard for people to describe. We can't diagnose Lucy, obviously, but it is a safe bet that in addition to her illnesses as a child and into adulthood, she was deeply affected by her abusive father. Lucy's mother, it seems, worked all the time to take care of the family and was gone most of the day. Charles, being a lazy good-for-nothing, was around a hell of a lot more. Great. So he's the house parent. Perfect. Right. The abuser is the house parent. Yep. Here's Heather again describing best she could her memory of the type of person little Lucy was. Lucy was just a really quiet girl. She really didn't talk to anybody. She was just kind of a loner. You know, I don't know whether that was because of her her family or, you know, something else. But, I mean, she she was just kind of a an, an odd bird. You know, she wouldn't dress appropriately. Um, she was never... She always dressed nicely. When I say inappropriate, I don't mean, you know, in a bad way. She just would wear long hot sweaters in the summer, her rabbit fur jacket in the middle of August, you know, just weird stuff like that. Um, Lucy was a small girl, you know, she she was pretty, she had long hair, 
I, I want to say almost a bluish kind of hazel eyes. She was pretty. She was a pretty girl. She just sat there for hours. Yeah. Lucy had that classic, familiar, popular 80s look. Long, straight brown hair past her shoulders, tied up in the back, feathered. Those big feather bangs. And parted just off to the left side. She was really cute. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was a cute girl. She wore big hoop earrings and smiled a lot. The one thing about Lucy everyone, including Heather, says is that she rarely strayed away from those steps she was always seen sitting on, hanging out in front of her house. At times, Lucy would venture out to nearby Burnside Avenue, a main artery connecting side streets like Church Street. She'd walk up and down Burnside, waving at people she didn't know, talking to people driving by and stopping at the red lights. I mean, living in East Hartford as a kid and then living there again when I was older, you know, there were several people who did this. I, I don't know in East Hartford. I, I don't know if this is common anywhere else, but, you know, there'd just be this person, this fixture that was there on the corner, just waving to everybody talking. Her mother, Big Lucy, we'll call her. You know, actually, uh, my niece is named Lucy and her nanny that lived with them for a while was also named Lucy. And that's exactly what we called them. It was Big Lucy and Little Lucy. (laughs) Big Lucy said this once, quote, she always had a smile on her face and really loved life, end quote. One of Lucy's favorite things to do was watch as the branches on the trees outside the kitchen window of the house danced during a storm. She'd sit near the kitchen window inside and just gaze for hours at a time. Lucy was never in any trouble, had no background of drugs or alcohol. At 21 years old, she seems rather harmless. Just a young woman living at home with her parents, trying to find her way in life after being dealt a bad hand of cards few of us can relate to. But on August 31st, 1987, Lucy Carmen is outside in front of her home, sitting on the steps as she normally would every single day. Her mother later says the last time she saw Lucy, her daughter was sitting, talking to a man on a bicycle. And then she was gone from those front steps. Several neighbors said that it was strange not seeing her there because she was such a fixture in the neighborhood. It gave many the gut feeling that something was very, very wrong. When the family realizes she is gone and she didn't turn up at her usual spots, like Sam's Pizza just around the corner or Burnside Avenue, the feeling is immediately that something awful has happened to Lucy, that someone maybe did something bad to her. Um, there wasn't really any kind of chitter chatter about her until after it kind of hit the newspapers, then everybody was, was kind of you know, freaking out about it, especially like us, because we were right there on Hanmer Street. I lived on Burnside. So all of us in that area were kind of like, wow, you know, what is going on with this? And because we used to walk everywhere. That's just how it was back then. You know, so we were all kind of like, ooh, you need to be careful. One day turns into two, two turns into three. We all know this story. The young woman everybody called Little Lucy had either taken off or someone convinced her to leave. But as news broke of Lucy being missing, the neighborhood people believed something terrible happened. Of course, 
father of the year, Charles Carmen, was the first person cops raised an eyebrow toward. I mean, the dude's history of violence and manslaughter wasn't looking great for him. Yeah, I mean, he's murdered one of his children. Why not just go for two or three? That's it. I mean, you know, it it feels like this case is heading that way. Mm -hmm. The fact that he abused his kids, ran the household as if it was a prison camp, Mm -hmm. screamed at everyone. Why wouldn't he get pissed off one day because he couldn't hear the television, beat Lucy to death and dump her body somewhere? It seems on brand. Sure does. But almost immediately, Charles is ruled out. And East Hartford police are on record saying that Charles was not responsible for Lucy's disappearance. And here's the thing. He had an ironclad alibi. Hmm. Charles was in prison at the time. Oh, (laughs) twist. (laughs) As her disappearance becomes news, it is very disturbing how Lucy is portrayed by the local media. And we really haven't come a long way. After being missed for a week, everyone somehow knew Lucy was never coming back. She would never in a million years take off for that long and not come home. But her portrayal by media was, in my opinion, vicious. A local newspaper article written about Lucy soon after she is determined to be a missing person says this, quote, Lucy Carmen, who was undergoing psychiatric treatment care, was last seen sitting in front of her house, end quote. So let's unpack that a minute. The implication is that because she was undergoing treatment, that it might have had something to do with her disappearance. You see, you're telling people that, oh, she's mentally ill and she's missing. So people just kind of turn a blind eye and say she'll turn up somewhere. Right. And this is, you know, there's still some stigma around it, of course. We're getting better. But this is back in a time when mental illness had so much stigma around it. And even trying to get any help for some kind of mental illness had so much stigma around it. Right. It's nothing to be ashamed about. Like it has to be her fault somehow because of her illness. You know, that's where I'm go- right. going with this, you know. and Yeah. And as a crime guy, it's really not helping the investigation part of this. Right. And it's this sort of weird victim blaming of like, yep. well, she already had this going on. It's kind of the same thing that people do with sex workers. They call them the less dead yes. or they call them, oh, it was a high risk lifestyle. So a, a sex worker got murdered. Who cares? That's that's still a person, and it's also not their fault. Like it doesn't matter what they're doing. You don't. It's not okay to kill them. You're dehumanizing this person in print, exactly. Right, and yes. you're taking the focus off of them. Right, and taking the focus off of the fact that like someone has made them disappear. Someone has presumably killed yes. them. Yes. Whether or not they wandered off. Right. I don't want to stand too high in the soapbox. You know, not today, anyway. <laughs> Save that for another episode. Absolutely. (laughs) Because there's a lot to get into in this case. Uh, Big Lucy told reporters early on that little Lucy is, quote, confused about her identity and also answers to Diana. Hmm. Those I spoke to, they never mentioned this. I specifically asked, was she confused about who she was or did she ever have multiple personality or did she ever call herself Diana? And the people I spoke to who were there at the time said, that's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. And that seems like the sort of thing that like a teenage friend of hers would very clearly remember. Like I can tell you all of the nicknames of all of my friends from junior high. In that same early report, her mother indicates that Lucy is likely lost somewhere and doesn't know where or even possibly who she is. All she knows is little Lucy 
was wearing a light blue windbreaker, black sweatpants, and sneakers the last time her mother saw her on the steps talking to the man on the bike. Saying that little Lucy is delusional and might be lost, that bothers me. You cannot go down this path when you're trying to find missing persons, unless we're talking about a diagnosed dementia or Alzheimer's patient, or maybe someone with schizophrenia. It tempers public response from the get-go. It tells people more than they need to know. The facts are, nobody knew what happened to Lucy, and she is missing. Period. And to put it out there that she could be delusional or she is being seen by mental health professionals tells the public that she is different. And it lessens the chances of the public taking her disappearance seriously. Exactly. It's easy to sort of write it off. Like, oh, well, you know. By September 17, 1987, Lucy's family feels that the police are not doing enough to look for her. She's been missing now 17 days. The family begins to speak out about their distrust of law enforcement. I might add here that the East Harford Police Station is like two blocks west of Church Street, literally right around the corner from where Lucy went missing. East Harford Police come out and say that the Carmen family failed to report Lucy officially missing for eight days and gave officers no details or insight into where she could have gone or who she could have gone with and acts totally aghast. Now. The same family wants to complain about the police not helping. So, I mean, this happens a lot in missing person cases, right? Someone goes missing. They're 18, 19, 20, 21. They're, they're adult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the police are saying, ah, they're, they're going to come back. They ran off with a boyfriend. They're, they're, they're at a bar. They whatever. They take off. They're just, they're, they're in Cancun. Right. Where the family has the gut instinct, the gut feeling, no, we've called all the friends, we've called all the local places, something's wrong. Yeah, it doesn't add up. Right. There was tension from day one between police and the Carmens. Again, another mistake when searching for missing people that relates back to what I said just a few minutes ago, the earliest information you release in any missing person case becomes vitally important. Less is always more early on. Keep it to vitals, height, weight, eye color, hair, clothing, where and when, what time, the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Add the history of the person into the mix and it just confuses the situation or tells people to judge the person. Mm -hmm. Now, being in true crime for about 25 years now, I have only seen what happens next one other time. A case I covered in my earlier incarnation of Crossing the Line last fall. But let's take a quick break, come back. We'll go through an unbelievable breakthrough in the case of little Lucy Carmen. Some of the controversy surrounding the rift between police and the Carmen family is later addressed by police. According to to then East Hartford Police Department Detective Robert Canary, because the Carmen family did not report Lucy missing for eight days and, quote, gave police no clues of where they should look for her. Police will not search for a person able to care for herself unless we are given an area where the person might be, end quote. This is very fundamentally not the family's job to be like, 
I know where my probably dead family member is before the police go searching. Like, that's utterly insane. Well, to contrast what this detective says, episode 10, 11, 12, the John Cosme case of crossing the line. Yes. The family's running around for months telling the police, we think he's here. We think he's there. We think Mm. he's there. They're missing son I'm talking about. And what happens is the family ultimately finds him. Which is horrible. Because the cops won't look. No one should have to find a family member that way. The family contends that Lucy's disappearance should have never been taken as routine because she was, quote, mentally disturbed, end quote. The official date Lucy was last seen was August 31st. The missing persons report is filed on September 8th. On September 17th, nine days hence, after frustration grows on the part of Lucy's relatives, they decide to go out and conduct their own search. And after just a little while, they find Lucy. Her body is located in a wooded area fairly close to where she lives. I, I mean, this, that just blows me away mm. that, that she's so close to where she lives, just around the corner from her house. The police rule her death a homicide after the medical examiner determines that she died from head injuries. They could not, however, determine what caused those head injuries or if she had been sexually assaulted. Turns out little Lucy's aunt and cousin found her body. Lucy was nude from the waist up, lying face down on a ledge along the Hockadam River. She was just a short distance off the road in a semi-rural area, less than a quarter mile from her house. There's an auto parts store there today. Remember earlier in the episode, I talked about a kid on a bike last seen talking to Lucy. Well, police begin immediately searching for this guy. And they describe him as, quote, a teenager, white, with dark hair, who was sitting on a dark bicycle talking to Lucy, end quote. They stress the kid is likely just a witness, not a suspect. They always say that, by the way. Hmm. Police confirm a few days later that there is no question that someone took her life. Lucy was murdered. Violently, I might add. As weeks pass rainstorms start rolling through town. And keep that in mind, because that's going to become important. Several people are brought in and given lie detector tests, questioned as suspects. A $20,000 reward is then posted for information leading to an arrest. After her body is found, the neighborhood begins to talk. Here's Heather, one of Lucy's former neighbors, once again. We're like, wow, you know, somebody killed somebody right here. This is our neighborhood. It was very upsetting to all of us, even though, I mean, we didn't know her. She was kind of like a a staple. She was always sitting here, sitting there, sitting by the library. And it was like really upsetting because she was harmless. Heather's actually scared. As time moves on and neighborhood rumors begin to work their way around, Heather finds herself in a precarious situation. About five or six months after the discovery of Lucy's body, she hears a story. Me and my friend and my friend were um, hanging out with who lived across the street in a multifamily house from Lucy's house. And um, we were hanging out there partying, doing our, you know, teenage stuff, whatever. And um, this person had started a fight with and had in essence told him 
you told them I killed her. I know you did. And and we just kind of looked at each other because everybody in East Hartford in that section of East Hartford knew Lucy. And I was like, I'm out of (laughs) here. You know, I got to go. And on the way out, this guy was screaming at me and my friend. If you tell anybody, I'll kill her. I'll kill you. I'll kill your family. And when I got home, I was really upset. And um, I kind of, you know, carried that with me for a couple of days. And my mother was kept asking me, you know, Heather, what's going on with you? And then finally I told her, I said, look, this is what happened. We were over here. He started a fight with about killing Lucy. And then he told me that he would kill us if we said anything. Heather doesn't know what to do. Go to the cops, stuff it down and not tell anyone. This information, a threat, could solve a murder. Did Heather get specific about who she's referring to there? She did. She told me exactly who this person is, Hmm. his name, everything. And obviously we can't use his name, but I have it and I will give it to the right people. The person she's talking about had actually dated Lucy. He knew her very well. Heather did the right thing when she went to her mother. They discussed it. She wound up going to the police. I mean, this is how cases get solved. In the thick of it, that's what happens, you know? And this is not some Netflix series where there's some methodical, diabolical plot going on. It's like someone has information, they bring it to the police. Case gets solved. In Heather's interview with police, she tells them that this person told her he had taken Lucy out behind the house, and that was the last anyone ever saw of her. That same guy left town right after Lucy disappears. Detectives get the information about him and head south, where he lives, and they interview him. But no charges were ever filed. Another guy who had told his sister that Lucy was dead before her body is even found is then given a lie detector test. He fails. Again, no charges were filed. Then an anonymous letter shows up to police from a local prison. The guy says he, quote, pushed Lucy to the ground because she refused sex. She hit her head on a rock, end quote. They find and interview this guy. And I'm not sure how they discovered that the anonymous letter came from this guy, but I'm pretty sure that they had an informant. Got it. He denies the allegations he made against himself. Again, he denies the allegations he made against himself. And once again, no charges are filed. What? The kid on the bike is ruled out after several more interviews because police say, quote, his mental state kept us from pursuing an arrest warrant, end quote. That baffles me right there. His mental state kept us from pursuing an arrest warrant. I, I, I have no words. I mean, it's like, okay, so uh, who cares? <laughs> He's too mentally ill to pursue as an arrest? Yeah, that's not the police's decision to make. It's a judge and a jury's decision to make what happens to him if he committed a murder because of his mental state. Well, most police departments have psychologists, forensic psychologists that they can call and say, listen, we got somebody who's, you know, they're acting strange. We uh-huh. need we need you here. Right. When we interview them, we need you here 
when we charge them. Right. And then after that, what happens to the person isn't it doesn't matter to the people who have made the charges. Right. Who've made the arrest. Yeah. Totally. So bizarre. There were too many suspects, police conclude, and they could never effectively link one of them to Lucy's murder. Quote, it's difficult, police told a Hartford Current reporter in the late 90s, to weed out all the dead ends. That's the job. That's the job, is to follow all of the dead ends, like follow all the leads. You had one job. Right. That job is difficult. Guess what? To weed out the dead ends. Yep. Time had passed between when Lucy was murdered and when she was found. There is no forensic evidence because of the rain that had passed through. Remember those storms I was talking about? And Lucy's body was too decomposed when they found her to gather much evidence. Which may have not happened had the police looked right away and found her right away. And they would have found her right away. Right. The family did. But here is an interesting bit of information, at least to me. Naked from the waist up, Lucy's clothes were found, quote, neatly placed 47 feet away from her body. That tells me this is definitely someone who knew Lucy personally. This murder was not a random act of violence by someone unknown to her. In 2002, a last great effort to solve the case takes place when a new detective arrives and re-interviews everyone he can find. But, quote, nothing panned out, end quote, he says. To this day, Lucy's case remains unsolved. If you have information, please contact me or the East Hartford Police in Connecticut. You can do so anonymously if you choose. And I might say the East Hartford Police Department today is a lot different from back in the day. And I just want to thank Sherry W. for sending me this case, which I had never heard of, even though I grew up in the same town. If you have cases you want Catherine and I to cover on Crossing the Line, please reach out. I'll take a look. I want to cover cases you want me to cover. That's it for this week. Please subscribe. I'm begging. I beg every week. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, be safe, be aware. Out. Sources for today's episode come from... Death Puzzle Unsolved by Christine Dempsey, Hartford Current, 9-17-2007. 18-month-old child dies after beating by father, Hartford Current, May 1st, 1958. Dead child's father is charged with murder, Hartford Current, May 2nd, 1958. Baby's death blamed on beating by father, Bridgeport Post, May 16th, 1958. Grand jury refuses to indict father on charge of murder, Meriden Record, June 13, 1958. And Phelps wishes to thank Rachel McGrath for her archival research. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.